Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the premier podcast of planetary pondering, pontification and prelection, and the only broadcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. You're in for a treat this month, as always, as Hannah takes a quick break from her appearances on television and turns instead to the web to answer some of the questions you wonderful lot have posted on Twitter and Facebook. You can also catch her being awesome on the BBC Horizon special on extreme weather in the universe on the iPlayer now and coming soon to the US. Also coming up, I will discuss the Earth's early climate and what it can teach us about exoplanets, and our intrepid reporter Hugh will cover the month's exoplanetary news from the Exocast news desk. But first, let's meet our exocasters. Hugh Osborne hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. And Hannah Wakeford studies the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C. And introducing the show was Andrew Rushby, who studies planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth at NASA Ames in California. Now, Hannah, what questions do we get on social media this month? We got some great questions uh, over over the course of our exocasts going live. Um, I'm going to answer just a few of the questions here uh, because I think they need some detailed explanations. And there's a couple that I'd very much like to come back to in some future exocasts, so I'd stay stay tuned for those ones. But first I'm going to start off with a really good question from Gerthub uh, on Twitter, who would like to know why we call Neptune-sized exoplanets Neptune-sized and not Uranus-sized. Now I've been asking around and I've been looking into this. The answer is there's no particular reason other than what I can gather Neptune's easier to sell as a, as a word to use than Uranus or Uranus, depending on how you say it. That's one of the other issues. As Kepler, uh, the Kepler mission has discovered many exoplanets which are kind of sub-Neptune sized, and Neptune is the next largest planet after Earth in our solar system. But it's slightly also more PC perhaps to say sub-Neptune rather than sub-Uranus. Uh, which you're not sure if that's one of the reasons why we've gone with that one. There's a whole host of jokes you can make uh, using that name. However, there was an exoplanet paper that I found which used Uranus as a comparison, so a hot Uranus transiting the nearby M dwarf star GJ3470. But the reason why they seem to use uh, Uranus as the naming convention here is because it is almost exactly the same radius, so four Earth radii and mass 14 earth masses so that seems to be because it's directly uh, linked with uranus's kind of system parameters that seems to work very well but neptune seems to be used because it is the next smallest planet and that really kind of gives us this size scale of our solar system relative to what other solar systems we're finding so hopefully that answered that question um but i i really think that it's a it's certainly an interesting one. I've pondered that myself. Moving on to a slightly more Earth-centric regime, Meteo Denny uh, asked how critical the ozone layer is for habitability. And Andrew, I think it'd be interesting to get your input on this in a bit. But one of the things that I found really interesting is that Earth is not the only planet to have this ozone layer. 
Um, Venus actually has a very thin layer of ozone uh, in its atmosphere, which was discovered by Venus Express spacecraft. Um, Mars also has a significant amount of ozone in its atmosphere, but we know that Venus and Mars are not currently inhabited or habitable. So clearly there's some critical level of ozone that is needed. Now, the ozone in the Earth's atmosphere is thought to be caused by the presence of life, which produces this thick layer high in the atmosphere. On Mars and Venus, the ozone layer is very tenuous, it's very thin, and is caused by breakup of carbon dioxide by sunlight. So it's this non-biological process of this photochemical nature where you're breaking up the carbon dioxide, um, which means which results in it being much higher in their atmospheres of Venus and Mars than it is here on Earth. Now, astrobiologists uh, suggest that you would need at least 20% of the current Earth amount of ozone before you can consider it coming from biological processes. But that's a difficult measurement to make here on Earth, on Mars, on Venus, as well as particularly on exoplanets where we're interested in this kind of habitability question. Now, as for the role itself that it plays in the habitability of a planet, Ozone is a really good UV absorber, and importantly, at the specific wavelengths of light which are damaging to cells and breaking up DNA. So that's where ozone has become really, really important for the development of life here on Earth. Now, this critical level of about 20% of what we currently have seems to be the, the arguments that are made in many of the papers that I've been reading. But Andrew, I was wondering if you had any other input on, on what ozone's role is and whether or not we're, we're looking at that as a key habitability marker. I think as a marker, it's kind of it's kind of tricky, right? It's a product of life, and and life certainly benefits from having it in the atmosphere. But as you um, as you noted with Venus and Mars, just having an ozone layer in a, in and of itself is not a, a a kind of strong characteristic of a habitable planet. Um, you certainly touched touched on the fact that it it, it protects organisms um, from from UV. And this would be particularly useful for organisms that are making the transition to to the land surface. Should they be doing that? Um, I think you know it doesn't make a huge amount of difference to to marine organisms. But also, it prevents um, in a purely chemical regime. It would prevent a lot of photochemical reactions from 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 taking place or going at the rate that they would have done without ozone. For example, the you know some reactions between methane and and uh, and oxygen would be slowed down. Um, by having an ozone layer. Um, so it affects the photochemistry, even the abiotic photochemistry of the planet as well. So it's a, it's a tricky one, um, ozone. And I, I don't know if the, the jury's out on it just yet. Fair enough. I thought it might be something like that, but it's uh, interesting to get uh, an actual astrobiologist's uh, point of view on that one. Because I certainly come from the next regime, which is, would it be possible uh, for a red dwarf to host a planet with a radius larger than its parent star? Which I thought was a very, very interesting question. And one of that kind of comes down to the formation process of the star itself. But another part of that is actually just this radius mass regime. Most uh, red dwarf stars are actually about the same size as Jupiter. But of course, they have a lot more mass packed into that space than Jupiter does, as Jupiter is a planetary mass. Now, the definition between a kind of planet brown dwarf, which is kind of, it's not got enough mass to become a star, and red dwarfs, is very, very kind of hazy, to use the word completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically, as opposed to literally. <laughs> yes, there we go. <laughs> 
And the line between a planet and a brown dwarf seems to be around 13 times the mass of Jupiter, which in itself is 317 times the mass of the Earth. But a brown dwarf, which would be in this kind of mass regime, would be still about the same radius as Jupiter. Now, as we pack more and more mass in, that radius doesn't seem to change a huge amount. And that's really, really just due to the way in which gravity is acting on this material and how uh, these different convection cells build up in the atmospheres. Because stars do have atmospheres very much like planets do. So interestingly, red dwarf stars are normally about planet a planetary radius of what we define as Jupiter as being our base planetary radius. So to have a planet around a red dwarf which is larger than the parent star doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a high mass planet. In fact, that's very, very rare. So we don't think that uh, disks, so the material from which a red dwarf will form, will have enough material to make something like Jupiter a really big planet. But if you have a low mass object, which is incredibly close to this star, and it would have to be very, very close, which is another implausibility, to heat up that external atmosphere and cause it to essentially what we call puff up, like we're seeing with some of these hot Jupiters, where the external heat from the star is expanding the atmosphere like a gas in a pot when you've got the lid on. When this planet is very, very close to the star, it's potentially the radius could be inflated such that that the radius of that planet itself is bigger than the star. But that is an incredibly unlikely scenario. So I would be incredibly surprised if we found a red dwarf star hosting a planet with a radius which is larger than itself. Um, But nature surprised us before in exoplanets. In fact, it's continuously trying to throw us uh, under the bus when we make any kind of predictions. So I'm not going to put a nice 100% on that one. I'm going to put a nice uh, scientific uh, version on that, which is the probability is very low for for that to be occurring. But uh, I'm happy to be proven wrong by nature, as we always seem to be. Well, I mean, so Trappist... One, a planet hosting star we've talked a lot about, is only 10% larger than Jupiter. So, I mean, there's an example right there. That's, that's a that's a late M sort of type star. And if there was a Jupiter-sized planet, it would block it out completely almost. So, yeah, certainly possible, but rare, like you say. Yeah, I, I'm really interested to see if something like that uh, is found. The searches at the moment are very much focusing down towards these M dwarf stars. So... We've got a lot to learn about the stars themselves, uh, the disks they form from, and what planets actually might be orbiting them. So that's definitely something to watch out for. These M dwarfs are really going to kick exoplaneteers in the teeth, I think, in terms of the different uh, systems that we'll be finding. And just to wrap it up, uh, bring the questions around to a close, we've got uh, one from Adrian Kelland on Facebook, who asked if we knew the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And I wondered what you guys thought on that. I mean, Deep Thought told us it's 42. I don't know if you've got any objections to that answer. I think 42 is still, you know, our best guess, right? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he just asked us if we had the answer. He didn't actually ask us what the answer was. So, yes, yes, we do. Yeah, who knows? 
Adrian, you're going to have to come up with the question yourself, or somebody else, come and tell us what the question was that gave us the answer 42. Right, for this month's concept, Andrew is going to take us through the early climate of the Earth. Thanks, Hannah. Um, if you were listening last month, and to the previous segment, of course, you may recall that Hannah covered the concept of, of photochemistry and, and photochemically generated hazes in particular, um, and their implications for detectability and climate uh, of distant exoplanets. Uh, we also know that, of course, in our solar system, photochemical hazes are produced both on Venus and Saturn's large moon Titan. Of course, there are plenty of photochemical reactions occurring in the Earth's modern atmosphere too, many involving the hydroxyl radical, which is comprised of one oxygen atom covalently bonded to one hydrogen atom and is produced when water molecules are split apart by solar radiation. However, the oxygen-rich atmosphere we're familiar with today is a relatively recent feature of the blue dot, in geological terms anyway. As far as redox chemistry goes, the Earth has probably had significantly different atmospheres over the course of its 4.5 billion year history. Unfortunately, we don't have a huge amount of geological or geochemical evidence to go on uh, regarding the earliest atmospheres, considering the ages we're talking um, about here. Uh, but the first atmosphere of the Earth would likely have been a, a hydrogen-helium envelope that was left over from the formation of the planet out of the solar nebula. This wouldn't have persisted very long, however, and would soon have been driven off by solar wind from the from the recently formed young sun. So like modern Titan, there is some evidence that the Earth was cloaked in a hydrocarbon haze during the Archean, um, which is about four to two and a half billion years ago. It's a big, a big swathe of time. Um, but for some of that time, we, we suspect that there might have been um, some, some haze regime uh, in the Earth's atmosphere. So geochemical analysis performed by Aubrey Zirkel and her team at the University of St Andrews on sedimentary minerals from around 2.6, 2.65 billion years ago um, suggests that a bi-stable haze regime existed around this time, with the atmosphere flipping between hazy and clear states depending on the amount of methane produced by marine organisms, and also the methane's interaction with, with uh, CO2 at the time. So this haze would have had important climatic effects, I think, anyway, um, given that the sun's output was perhaps 25% less than it is at present at the beginning of the Archean. So a study led by the VPL team, which is the Virtual Planetary Laboratory team at the University of Washington, and written by uh, Jida Arni, suggests that a methane-rich atmosphere, so we say methane-rich and about 0.3% methane, about 1% CO2, and maybe even a little bit of ethane. So th this methane-rich atmosphere could have cooled the Earth from around about 18 degrees Celsius to um, well below freezing in a photochemically generated haze regime. Now, of course, there's still significant disagreement on the relative composition of the Earth's atmosphere at this time, especially given the fact we have no evidence that the planet was frozen over, as we might expect if it was that cold. So this problem, I think, remains remains an open one for now, uh, and more research will, will, will maybe shed some more light um, on, on the solution to that. We can, however, be confident that that haze was eventually dissipated following the onset of the secular oxygenation of the atmosphere that began around 2.4 billion years ago, the Great Oxidation Event, as it's known. Um, as free oxygen mopped up methane in the atmosphere and the gradual buildup of an ozone layer uh, slowed the rates of photochemical dissociation. 
So around about 600 million years ago, saw another big jump in oxygen levels. Um, and they might have peaked around 35% during the Carboniferous. Uh, if you buy that, that's also quite a controversial statement. So the Carboniferous about 360 to 300 million years ago, before a steady decline that is still ongoing towards today's value of 21%. So you know, several different atmospheres there, several different states um, in which the atmosphere finds itself. And I think each of those atmospheres in turn provides us with almost a different planet to study um, and to help inform our future characterization of, of exoplanets and their atmospheres. So certainly the ability of a planet to support life and the type of life that would thrive would vary significantly under each state. So further to the reducing atmosphere and the cooler sun, the distribution and topographies of the continents, the rotation rate of the Earth, the orbital distance to the moon, the rapidity of geological processes such as subduction and outgassing, other innumerable factors would also have made a very different planet to the one you're listening to this podcast on right now. So things were very different and we tend to think about things and the planets that we discover as a snapshot in time. But, you know, we can we can look at the Earth and see its rich and varied history it, just in terms of its atmosphere and, and, and try and apply that model to, to the exoplanets we might find. So, for example, if alien astronomers caught sight of the Archean Earth in their spectroscope, maybe 3.5 billion years ago, they probably wouldn't have at the time considered it a world able to support complex or intelligent life. And they would have been correct. Um, a reducing atmosphere of methane or hydrogen sulfide or something like that doesn't necessarily lend itself to, to metabolic processes that generate the energy required to, to power large brains and, and bodies. So life on Earth at this time would have reflected this fact being small and stupid. Although that's not really fair, is it? Um, I'm, I think I'm being a bit too hard on the Archean organisms there because life takes, takes time and the early climate and the atmosphere of the Earth what would have been trying for a novel biosphere of um, of aerobic respirers. So we think that the advent of intelligent life, like us, um, would take several billion years, and the biosphere undergoes several complexity revolutions en route. So I'm just going to talk very briefly about a 1995 book, actually, uh, The Major Transitions in Evolution, uh, which is by Oxford biologists John Maynard Smith and Eos Sathmeri in which they identify several critical steps in evolutionary history on which the later emergence of, for example, intelligent life ultimately depended. So these are statistically unlikely events that resulted in a, an increase in either biological complexity or, or information storage capabilities and transmission capabilities, and include, for example, the RNA to DNA transition, the chimeral endosymbiotic evolution of multicellular eukaryotes from the prokaryotic bacteria and archaea that preceded them. So in non-biologist terms, simple single-celled life turning into multicellular complex life. So we think that these revolutions probably only occurred once on the Earth, which is why they were called critical. Um, and had they not done, intelligent life would not have emerged. It therefore holds that this process may occur on other planets in which life arises, and that the reason that we don't find intelligent life is because it's really difficult for life to make one of those jumps. We don't know which one is going to be the difficult one. Maybe it's, it's relatively simple to get life going, but, but really difficult to, to get it to some stage of complexity and intelligence. So, of course, in order to avoid any accusations of determinism here, I should say there's no reason to expect that evolutionary lineages will increase with complexity and no evidence that they do. But if we're considering intelligent species, we must, by implication, be considering life that's more complex than that of a single cell. So we can kind of use this model to think about it. 
I guess what I'm trying to say is that if we want to find intelligent life, we have to look for planets that have remained habitable for a very long time. A couple of hundred million years in this case just isn't going to cut it. Um, so we may well inhabit a, a galaxy of single-celled neighbors uh, with any potential for intelligent conversation stymied by the evolutionary gauntlet through which they must first pass. The temporal nature of planetary habitability is something that occasionally slips by in, uh, in discussions of habitable worlds, but it's important to remember that we're viewing just a snapshot in the long evolution of a planetary atmosphere and potentially also its biosphere that might have undergone significant changes in structure and chemistry and may continue to do so into the future. So I think studies of the early climate of the Earth and of course the other solar system planets also gives us a unique opportunity to characterize the vestiges of very different worlds without having to travel too far. Nice. So if I want to find dinosaurs, what kind of atmosphere am I looking for? Hmm. Good question. I think the fact that dinosaurs are, are pretty big, right? Their, their body plans require, you know, enormous enormous mass. So I think you'd want an oxygen-rich atmosphere, one certainly maybe a little bit higher than 21, but not so high that just anything um, existing will catch fire. So I think if we start getting up to 30-35%, um, things tend to catch fire like all the time. So um, um, I, I'm kind of skeptical of that 35% number because I, th I think it's a little bit too high, even with you know a lot of water around pretty much just the friction of us walking around on the surface would cause a fire if there was 35% oxygen. Um, so high oxygen, probably high temperatures as well to keep to keep metabolisms ticking over. And then yeah, we might be in might be in a good place to look for dinosaurs. They were around a lot longer than we've been, so. They certainly were, but they didn't invent a space program, which is the problem. They didn't do that, no. What's the problem? <laughs> these um these Archean era alien astronomers, which planet would they think was more habitable? Mars obviously had oceans in its past. Venus, we now think, might have been more habitable than we initially thought in the Archean. So, so which one do you think they would have sent their probes to? I think personally, at the time, they would have gone for Venus. Um, as you said, you know, some recent papers have come out suggesting that it might have been a lot more habitable, certainly in the early history of the solar system. Um, and some of my my models suggested that as well. So, around about 3.5 billion years ago, I would have, you know, dispatched probes to Venus's atmosphere. Uh, to see what was going on there. They might have found some interesting stuff as well, for all we know. <laughs> and now, Hugh with this month's Exoplanet News. Thanks, Andrew. So we'll start, uh, as we've started the last two weeks, I believe, with uh, Proxima Centauri. So the Pale Red Dot team, who announced their discovery well, almost two months ago now of a planet around Pro Proxima, weren't the only ones looking for planets. Uh, at the same time as what turned out to be that successful RV search, so radial velocity search, another team was searching for transiting worlds around this nearby M-dwarf star. Uh, this was led by Dave Kipping, who's at Columbia, and he runs a great YouTube exoplanet series, which you should probably check out too. So they got 42 days of observations, uh, with most this tiny little 15 centimetre space telescope, which instead of the Hubble, which is obviously the, the daddy of space telescopes, it's often called the Humble Space Telescope because of its size. So they, they uh, took these 42 days across two years and looked for transits of, of, of any planets that might be in the system. Now, the RV detection from the Pale Red Dot team kind of narrowed down where they, where they expected to find a planet. So if that planet was passing in front of its star, and there's about a 1.5% chance that it would, so pretty slim, but it's possible, then they should know exactly where and how deep the transit should happen. 
even though the chance of its transiting is very low, if it does transit, then it's a really important discovery because uh, suddenly that opens up our ability to study the density of this planet, study the atmosphere through transmission spectroscopy, and do a load of cool things that we can't do with just a radial velocity world as, as it is now. So, did they find it? Well, maybe? But probably not. So the team did see a transit-like dip in the data near where it was predicted and about the same depth, but Proxima Centauri is a hugely noisy star. So they found dozens of flares and star spots. They also found transit-like dips where they definitely shouldn't have found them. Uh, and when they checked to see if they could recover planetary signals that they injected, they were unable to find them in, in 20 to 40% of the time. So without more data, it's impossible to say whether that one dip they find is real or not. And personally, like looking at the data, I'd be kind of skeptical. But future searches with sort of uh, other space telescopes like Spitzer might do better at finding or ruling out a transiting planet. Another interesting result from the last month was from Jason Steffen and Jeff Coughlin. So Kepler may have finished its prime mission three years ago, but it's still being mined for new data and new planets. And these guys looked at all of the uh, detected signals and found a host of potentially very interesting and, and sort of separate population of planets. Uh, these are so-called hot Earths, so the planets with the radius of Earth that graze their parent stars on around one-day orbits, so extremely close in and extremely hot, hot enough for sort of lava surfaces. Now, Kepler's also found a lot of tightly orbiting multi-planet systems, although the further out from your star, the less likely a planet is to transit. So the authors looked at whether some of these, these 140 hot Earths could just be the innermost member of one of these transiting families of, of planets. But the numbers didn't quite work. There were too many uh, of these hot Earth systems to be explained by the number of multi-planet systems we see. So they suggest that there's a population, so at least 24 of their sample of their 140 planets, are a distinct population of sort of lonely hot Earths that don't have companions near. And one of the solutions to this, one of the like interpretations, might be that these are the remnants of hot Jupiters, whose outer layers could have been stripped by the how close they are to the star, leaving only a dense Earth-sized core. One of the things that I was interested in was these Earths, these very close in Earth. So they found around small stars. What kind of stars are they looking at for 140 of these things? Um, I think they're more likely FGK stars. Um, so they, they are really quite large stars. Yeah, so their orbits are so close that they that Kepler obviously was looking at these stars for four years. You can beat down the noise and find these small signals. Are they certain that they aren't some kind of spot? Because on those types of stars, you can get spots that last, you know, months, two I, years. I don't know. I mean, I imagine one day is much faster than most uh, main sequence stars How's rotate. It spinning? So. right. Um, and I'm not sure. I'm just quite surprised by this. Yeah, I'm, t I'm a tiny bit sceptical there's not some population of... If you're not quite sure what the population of false positives is, so what the population of things like eclipsing binaries is, then that might throw a spanner into what your validation is. And, and I think this sort of one-day, very shallow regime might be pushing where the limits of we can use this technique is. So I'm not sure if that they're real worlds or not. Yeah, I mean, we've seen evidence of, of hot Jupiters existing in such orbits 
still uh, with their gas envelope on them. So, I mean, there is potential, I suppose, for smaller worlds to have lost that. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly interesting. Yeah. I, I am like you, skeptical. Um, and I'm sorry, but I always seem to be for the discovery. Well, we have we have many more transit surveys coming up, so maybe if they find more, then we can put this uh, issue to bed, I guess, yeah. And now we've had the news, it's on to the weather, specifically in hot Jupiters. So there are a couple of interesting papers from the last month showing insights into how the climate and weather of these uh, ethereal and hot worlds could look like. So one study by uh, Vivian Parmentier looked at trying to uncover what the clouds, winds and temperatures on an array of these hot worlds might actually look like. So they used a, G a 3D global circulation model, a uh, global climate model, much like those we use here on Earth. And they applied these to a range of extreme temperatures seen on hot Jupiters. They also looked at an array of different chemical species that might cause clouds and saw where these clouds would condense and how they would move around given the temperatures. So for example, they found that a planet with corundum, so uh, aluminium oxide clouds would appear completely cloud covered below about 1800 Kelvin and above this the clouds would begin to be boiled away by the star on the day side. However something like uh, sodium sulfate so N Na2S Disodium sulfide Sodium sulfide eight. Oh yeah Yeah Eight, Sulf eight is, is oxide oxygen. isn't it yeah. yeah Okay The joys of planetary geology in the atmospheres <laughs> uh, learning a lot of things Yeah I've forgotten my chemistry Um <laughs> Okay, so sodium sulfide, on the other hand, gave clear skies for a range of temperatures for the entire planet. Uh, and they also saw what has been observed for a few hot Jupiters so far, and that is that the winds on the planets tend to blow from west to east, causing cloudy, uh, cooler regions on the western limb for many planets, and sort of hot, sunny regions in the east. There was also another study this month on the uh, weather in exoplanets by our very own Hannah Wakeford, and she, she and her team looked at how clouds might form in super hot Jupiter atmospheres with dayside temperatures upwards of 1800 Kelvin. So these temperatures would be hot enough to melt rock and earth. And indeed, it's thought that some of the compounds we might find in these atmospheres may well be rock on earth. Specifically, they looked at what temperatures these compounds might condense at and showed that uh, titanium oxide, so a compound expected to be present in many exoplanet atmospheres, but rarely found so far, uh, it likely condenses out into invisible clouds before reaching the limb of a planet, where observations are most sensitive. Um, is that right, Hannah? So can you comment on, on these results? Yeah, so we looked at both titanium oxides and aluminium oxides, so this corundum as well, um, and then the titanium ones are kind of a perovskite, I'm learning all of these geology words. Um, and what we were kind of finding from that was that there's loads of these aluminium material in the atmospheres. So if you're seeing a cloud, then it's likely this aluminium material. There's not enough titanium to block the light on the levels that we're seeing for these planets, but it can condense out to form these very thin, tenuous clouds, like you said. So they're not the cause of this opacity source. It's these aluminium clouds on top of that that are the cause of this, this blocking of the light that we're seeing. But what's really interesting is that we're not seeing this titanium where we should be in the gas phase. It's it, in these temperatures, it's supposed to be in the gas phase. So this aluminium, like these, these corundums uh, are really blocking out a lot of the light in these super hot planets. And that's it for this month's news. Uh, hopefully we continue with uh, great news next month.
This month was a bit dry, actually. I, I, I think that, you know how September is like job deadlines? Everyone puts their papers out by the end of September and then October's a bit of a lull. Everybody tries to put their papers <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a battle this month. Uh, lots lots of job deadlines. But uh, the Exoplanet, Exoplanet world doesn't stop. Uh, it's definitely continuing and I think next month's going to be just as jam-packed, full of uh, new and interesting discoveries. I certainly hope so. And now it's time to adopt a planet. This week it's Andrew's choice. What have you gone for? So my adopt a planet for this month is the wonderfully unique little world Kepler-138b. This planet orbits a red dwarf host star about 60% the mass of the sun, 200 light years away in the constellation Lyra. So to be honest, the whole Kepler-138 system is is quite unique uh, and endearing. Um, so in an ideal case, I'd adopt them all. Uh, however, as we don't have that much room in the Exocar studio, I'll just have to stick to one. So Kepler-138b was discovered back in 2011 by the Kepler Space Telescope team. Um, but the other two neighbouring planets in the Kepler-138 system were discovered and confirmed some time earlier by another team using Kepler data. So this results in the rather unique situation of the system actually having two planets designated B. So you have Kepler-138b, which whips around the star in just 10 days, uh, and the slightly more distant super Earth-sized KOI-314b, which takes two weeks to make the journey. So all three planets in the system uh, orbit too close to their star to be considered strong candidates for hosting life, but that doesn't make them any less interesting, of course. So Kepler-138b uh, is about the size of Mars, weighing in at 6% the mass of the Earth, compared to Mars's 10%, and has about 50% its radius. And this is important because it was actually the first planet smaller than the Earth to have its mass and radius, and therefore density, accurately measured. And it significantly extended the range of measured densities into this kind of low mass parameter space, which is super useful for us. These, these data furthermore suggested it had a, a rocky composition, somewhat like the Earth. So its roughly Earth-sized estranged siblings, by name at least, are also interesting and, and warrant a special mention. So the most distant planet in the system, so KOI-314c, or unofficially Kepler-138d, just to make things confusing, is believed to belong to a class of planets known as gas dwarfs. So these are small rocky worlds with uh, thick gaseous atmospheres, somewhat resembling miniature Neptunes or Uranuses or Jupiters. This conclusion was reached after its density was also calculated, um, so it has a mass about 65% that of the Earth, but a larger radius extending out to about 1.2 Earth radii, suggesting a very different composition to the other two planets in the system. So as it's relatively young, less than a billion years probably, uh, we expect this thick hydrogen-helium envelope to dissipate in the future, as may well have occurred much sooner on the closer planets in the system, and as I mentioned in my earlier segment on atmospheric evolution, likely also happened on Earth. So gas dwarfs are, are considered relatively common in the galaxy, but as is so often the case, we don't have an example of this class of planet in our solar system. So there we have it, uh, a unique planet within a unique planetary system. So welcome to the club, Kepler-138b. That's a nice little interesting one you got yourself there. I like it. We've yeah. got a really eclectic family, don't we? <laughs> we really, really do. Yeah, and I just feel bad about leaving leaving Kepler-138b's estranged siblings out of, the, out of the adoption party. But they can be honorary members, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> now you're making us feel bad. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, I mean they've had their they've had their moment in the sun as well. They were discovered before Kepler one thirty eight, when it was still a you know Kepler object of interest (KOI) by I think David Kipping and his team looking for exomoons. So that you know they've had their they've had you know plenty of attention to. But I think you you made an interesting point, which is that these small worlds. Um, can have significantly uh, inflated radii because of this hydrogen atmosphere. Just uh, a, just 1% hydrogen helium atmosphere on top of an Earth-sized world can inflate the radius significantly. Um, so that's that's something that we're really looking into in terms of this sub this Neptune sub Neptune population of planets. What is the age range in which we would expect to be losing that? Uh, how does that correlate with the star type, the distance? Uh, the temperature of the planet itself uh, as it's cooling down. So, just just one percent of hydrogen helium can can do that, and that's that's really interesting. For what kind of primordial atmosphere would be left behind after that? Yeah, and maybe systems like this are the ones to to study, um, in which there are some examples of um, gas-rich atmospheres like with hydrogen and helium, for example, Kepler one thirty eight. Um, D or KOI 314C uh, and the, you know, the other planets in the system are having those atmospheres potentially already stripped away because I think we can connect you know stellar evolution and distance and you know potentially get a handle on how long those atmospheres persist for. So maybe we'll let you have the whole system in there. Yeah great. <laughs> I'm going to put my skeptical hat on now and say that I'm not sure I believe the mass of, uh, of planet C or B2 or I can't remember which one it is. There does seem to be some disagreement. Yeah, the the first paper suggested much higher mass than than yeah. has been later suggested. So these planets are in 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 resonance, and they're measured by so the the tug on each planet from its neighbours kind of causes it um, to to move in terms of the, when we expect the transit to happen. Uh, it's called transit timing variations, and that that tug is proportional to the the mass of the planet because it's gravitational tug, obviously. Um, so that can tell us the mass of 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 these worlds. But actually, if you look at a lot of the uh, planetary systems, this has been done for in in Kepler mostly because Kepler gives us such precise timing and 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 photometry for this. There's quite a lot of weird systems that I almost don't believe. So there's another system. There's another few masses where the planet appears to be more dense than the densest possible model you could have with pure iron in a sphere that's been compressed. It, uh, and and I, I'm still kind of sceptical that maybe in some cases these TTVs can be pulled off by maybe a, another companion or some, there's something else going weird in the system. Um, sure, so it's, it's, it's per- perhaps a, a methodological limita- limitation as opposed to something weird going on in, in this particular system, right? Is there some way to, to improve the, the mass estimates? Yeah, if we can get radial velocities, I mean, if this system's a bit a bit faint, possibly. I'm I'm not sure what the uh, brightness is for for that sort of technique. But if you can, there are other ways to get masses, and I'm not sure it's been done yet. But if uh, it could be corroborated with a different measurement, then I would I would certainly believe it a lot more. Yeah, great. So probably not the the last we've heard of Kepler one thirty eight. There's always more to be done. Exactly. So thank you for joining us on another info packed exocast. Next time, I will discuss some of the weirdest and most controversial planets that have been hypothesized to date. Hugh is going to take us through the bizarre Boyajian star and adopt a planet, and Hannah will cover the latest exoplanetary news from November. So once again, if you can't wait until next time, you can check out all our shows on our website and on iTunes, and remember to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. 
so it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Hugh and Hannah. Bye. Bye. Exocast.